Hello, this is Sekou Burmese, your host of The Lit Review, a podcast brought to you by the Academy of Management Journal. In this podcast, we dive into the insights of recent research published in the journal. And in every episode, we interview authors and corporate leaders to discuss the inspiration for their research ideas and how these insights can be applied to current pressing issues in organizations and markets. To kick off our second season, I have two fantastic guests for this episode, Angelica Lee and Shamul Melwani. Angelica is a faculty member at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, and Shamul is a faculty member here at Keenan Flagler Business School at UNC. They published a paper in 2022 entitled, Am I Next? The Spillover Effects of Mega Threats on Avoidant Behaviors at Work, which was selected by a panel of editors as the best paper published in AMJ in 2022. In our conversation today, we talk about this phenomenon of mega threats and how they impact behaviors at work. I also talk with the authors about their experiences working on a topic with so much emotional and social heft, and I ask them about their views on the ongoing debate about the role of race as we study organizations, a.k.a. naming the thing. I hope that you enjoy this episode of The Lit Review and my discussion with Angelica Lee and Shamul Melwani. My guest today on The Lit Review podcast is the dynamic duo of authors, Angelica Lee and Shamul Melwani. Angelica is the assistant professor of management and organizations at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Her research investigates race in organizations. She looks at the experiences of racial minority employees and how these employees speak and act in ways to combat racism. Shamul is an associate professor of organizational behavior, as well as the associate dean of the undergraduate business program. Her research considers the intersection of emotion and interpersonal processes in organizations, including some groundbreaking work on the influence of gossip in the workplace. So uh, I'm very excited. Welcome, uh, Shamul and Angelica, to the Lit Review. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. It just occurred to me just now, you are the first duo that I've had on this uh, podcast. I've normally had just one person, but I'm confident that this is going to be seamless because you're both professionals. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, a paper that you had uh, recently published at AMJ that won an award as the best paper of the previous year. I knew about this because I was on the committee, but I could not tell you. I couldn't tell Shamul every time I saw her in the hallway for like six months and it was killing me. But I uh, wanted to talk about that paper and then also use that as a springboard to discuss some other things. So uh, the paper looks at how social events and how they impact work behaviors. And so in a previous paper you two had, uh, you coined this term mega threat as a negative identity relevant societal event that receives significant media attention. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the examples that you use in your research for that. And the logic for your paper goes as follows, and correct me if I screw this up. In essence, when these mega threats occur, it impacts employees that belong to the identity relevant group uh, for the event. And this in turn shapes their work behaviors. And so your paper investigates the contextual factors that predict when we will see uh, these work behaviors impacted and how perhaps we can overcome or organizations can, can look to overcome these. So before we get into that, I wanted to ask you kind of a general question about how did you get involved and interested in this topic of mega threats and how it impacts work? Uh, yeah, so 
I'll kick us off. This was a, um, this research is definitely um, something that is really near and dear to both our hearts. And I think it it really jump-started our relationship together, if you will. And so the, the idea of mega threats or the idea that eventually turned into this research stream um, really came just from my own personal experience that I had in grad school. Um, so I was a, you know, I did my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, and after that first, my, during the summer, my first year of grad school, um, I remembered working on, you know, what grad students work on some lit review. I think I was working on a study design or something like that. Um, when during that summer, there were two shootings of black men that were killed by police and videos posted online of these shootings. And it seemed like they happened within 24 hours of each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so the first one was of Alton Sterling, who was killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, outside of a gas station. And the second one was of, Alta, of I'm sorry, Philando Castillo, who was shot um, during a traffic stop uh, right outside Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching these two videos and being really significantly um, impacted. And I, to the point where I couldn't really do or engage in the work um, that I was doing uh, for these this research that I was trying to advance in the same way I had been able to do it the day before. Um, and so I had this experience, um, and but I didn't know at the time that it was something I could really study. It wasn't until a couple of months later when Shamul and I were doing our beginning of the year check-in and we were, we were talking about research. Um, and at the end of that meeting, Shamul actually ended it and and asked me this question of like, what else are you thinking about? Like, what else has been um, something that you're interested in doing research on? Or, or what else is something that has kind of come to mind for you um, in the last couple of months that you would maybe want to do research on? And I told her about this experience that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and after talking to her about it in this conversation, we really realized that this was something that um, one, a lot of other people may have been uh experiencing and struggling with. And then two, it was something that organizational research, there was nothing on uh, the influence that these events and things that are happening in the world ha has on you when you enter the workplace. Mm. Um, and so Shamul, I remember Shamul saying to me, this is big. We mm. need to study this. Mm. Um, and so that kind of started us down the path of really trying to really just conceptualize what are these events and then what are the impacts of them on people? And you have to know at that time, I wasn't, I don't think I was officially Angelica's advisor at that point. Hmm. We were just doing sort of a check-in because we had some ideas that we were, we were talking about. So um, she didn't come to Kena Flagler to work with me. This actually landed up becoming the reason we started working together. Hmm. But just after that conversation, um, there was the the Unite the Right rally happened at the University of Virginia, yes. mm -hmm. and I was coming in to teach um, core OB to our MBA students the Monday after. And I remember walking in that day feeling like I couldn't, I didn't want to be in front of people. I was really nervous. I was really anxious. And saying to a bunch of colleagues around the business school, like, how are you all able to be here, mm. you know, looking and feeling the way you're feeling? And someone said to me, why? Um, and not in an insensitive way. They, mm -hmm. It's 
but it was really reflective of how our own individual experiences are so different. And it, I came back from that saying, okay, like this conversation with Angelica followed by this experience that I then had is clearly one that is being shared by so many. And it is very much affected by who we are and the identities we carry into the workplace and outside, of course. Yeah. So from very personal uh, places, which is which is great. We call it me search. Uh, but that's not always, uh, not always, that's hopefully never a derogatory uh, statement. I think a lot of things that we find interesting um, end up being really uh, 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 good topics to to then dive in and spend some time on. And so I like that it's personal. I like that it also brought the dynamic duo together. Um, and so for this paper in particular, uh, what would you say are your your key findings? So in our 2022 Academy of Management Journal paper, what we looked at was the influence that the a mega threat may have on individuals when they enter the workplace. Um, and kind of the top line of the paper is the fact that we find um, that these events can lead individuals when they identify with uh, victims in the event to eventually engage in what we title or call referred to as avoidant work behaviors. Uh, and so this is withdrawing from your work tasks, but also disengaging from your work colleagues. Um, and so in the paper, we, we develop this theoretical model that kind of walks from this event happens in the world to a individual employee in the workplace now avoiding or disengaging from their work tasks and colleagues. Um, and so the theory we develop in the workplace is, is first thinking about, you know, this event happens mm -hmm. and then the reaction of event observers being dependent on your social identity. So, you know, for instance, one of the, the bigger mega threats that occurred over the last couple of years that really captured the nation's attention was the murder of George Floyd. And so you can think of that event. And then if you what we theorize in the paper and what we find is that if you are also a member of George Floyd's racial group, uh, so if you are a uh, Black American, then as you're learning about this event, you're likely to experience this type of threat that we refer to as embodied threat. And what happens is that threat then sticks with you as you enter the workplace. It's hard to it remains alive and keeps the event alive for you, even as you're entering the workplace and you're attempting to engage in work. Um, and so then we also develop this, we integrate a theory of racialized organizations to talk about then how employees deal with that threat. Um, and so we theorize that because of the fact that organizations are racialized structures, that these employees then often feel the need to suppress this experience of threat or not openly talk about it um, or display it with their colleagues. And so then that is then the, the reason why you have this threat experience, you then are almost required to suppress it. And in utilizing the energy to suppress that threat, you end up engaging in these higher, you end up not having the energy to invest in your work tasks mm. and you end up disengaging from your work colleagues. Um, and then I'll kick it over to Shamul to expand more. 
I'm going to talk just for a couple of minutes about, I think, my favorite piece of this model. I think Angelica did a really great job of describing it as a whole. Um, for me, the piece of it, and I think I referred to this even earlier when I talked about, you know, just how our own experiences were in some ways so physical when some of these events occurred and we were thinking about our own experiences within them was this idea of embodied threats. So when we identify with a group, we tend to sort of personalize the experience of those who belong to the group. So when someone who we share an identity with, you know, if you're a Black American who is watching this terrible video of the murder of George Floyd, this identity um, that you share with the person becomes in some ways personalized. Mm. And so as a result of that, right, um, people who are watching this, people who share this identity become what we call vicarious victims of the event themselves. And this actually led to the title of our paper, mm. um, Embody Threat Leads Us to Ask, right? Mm -hmm. Am I next? Mm. And we become vigilant to sort of similar cues of harm as a result of that in the environment. And this is in some ways, because this threat is so insidious, it's difficult to turn off when we go into the workplace, even with the workplace having the norms that it, it typically does. Yeah. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the second half of the paper, which I you know think is, is really important, which is not only that this thing exists and that it impacts people in a certain way, which I think is really important, but that it's not the end all be all. Because if you read this and you think about this, you're like, all right, well, bad things happen in the world. And someone is going to identify to the people who the bad things happen to. So does that mean we're just every every week when a bad thing happens, a new wave of, of mega threats, you know, and is this just something that will just be an issue that organizations have to deal with? And so one of the things that I appreciate about the paper is that you do talk about what are some ways to attenuate this effect. And so, you know, I'll ask from an academic nerd perspective about your moderator, but then I I also want to you know just talk about in in a, in a in a more general term, you know organizations might say like well man this bad stuff happens all the time and so is this just we got to deal with it is that just kind of the takeaway from it and so what would you say to that so I'll you know you can give me the academic or the the less academic e either way. Uh yeah, so I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this. I mean, or and this is actually the, the piece that we spent so much time thinking about, you know, publishing an AMJ does make you often think sort of beyond the just the psychological experience of what might be happening for a person to, well, what should, what's the practical implication for organizations? What should managers do? How should we be thinking about actually creating impact outside of our academic world. Um, and so we spent a lot of time thinking about that, right? And from the get-go, we had a sense that safety or a feeling of safety, interpersonal safety, psychological safety was going to be a very key part of this. Because if we think a little bit about just being able to talk about our identities, even for Angelica and I to come together and very vulnerably talk about the experiences we were having that led us to then actually start to, you know, then investigate this, there was sort of dyadic safety that was that took time to build as well. And so we knew that safety was a part of this, but in our initial tests of it, the regular sort of scales just didn't work. 
Mm. And it was only as we started thinking about safety in a slightly more complex way, that it's not just a generic sense of psychological safety. That Mm. in itself is what we might refer to as a race neutral experience, right? That Mm. we're talking about psych safety and this model has been developed with a colorblind or race neutral perspective. That actually what we're talking about here is taking the same idea of racialized organizations, this theory of racialized organizations and saying, what does that look like? from a psychological safety perspective. And so our, the you know, our moderator and Angelica did a really good job of like delving deep into starting to understand how we were going to code for this was really because there was no scale, mm. was trying to understand now the sense of its safety, but only when we're thinking about people's ability to talk about their identities in a really free and open way. And so that's the sort of both academic piece, but also I would say as we're thinking about um, giving advice to organizations, right? This becomes a really key aspect of how we think about this is how are we building these environments where it's not just about safety around, I can voice my opinion, but really I can voice my sort of authentic self. Yeah, I think it was it it was interesting in diving into this research and and starting from this premise of, in general, employees, because of organizational structures and and the ways in which that we tend to avoid conversations around identity and, and race in the workplace, that then leads you to have this threat experience. And now you feel like you can't, you have to suppress it mm-hmm. and you're using all this energy to suppress it. Um, and so in thinking about, well, what does it look like for someone to not feel like they have to suppress it? What could mm-hmm. be the things that interrupts this process? It was interesting that in the end, we ended up with this moderator that was very closely linked to this experience of simply not feeling like you had to suppress it. And interestingly, the survey, even the 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 question in the survey that ended up capturing this was a very simple question of, mm. have you felt comfortable discussing this? Why or why not? And the responses were very much steeped in this idea of most respondents were feeling as if this wasn't something they could talk about. It wasn't Mm. something that you could uh, voice to your colleagues. Um, And so therefore that being the reason why employees felt like they needed to suppress and it had these negative downstream consequences. Um, And so I think the other important part of that is that on the, the other, conversely, on the other hand, for participants who did feel comfortable talking about it, It also tended to be where it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't this long, drawn out, in-depth, multiple hours, multiple hour session. It was most of the time it was, you know, a participant saying, you know, yeah, me and my colleagues tend to talk about these things um, all the time. I was able to tell them that I wasn't feeling great that day Mm -hmm. and they all understood and that was it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea of how do you build the safety and, and then even in understanding the practical advice you give to leaders and organizations of how do you start to build this identity-based psychological safety, which is what we call it in the paper, mm-hmm. it then becomes a question of, well, how do you develop these almost like one-on-one authentic relationships mm-hmm. that allows for someone to be able to, when they need it, simply spend, you know, five minutes saying, I'm not feeling well and have that be acknowledged without 
the feelings of, am I going to make this person uncomfortable? Is this going to negatively impact my job? Am I going to now stand out because of my identity? Have I called attention to this identity now? And is that going to have negative consequences for me? Um, And so, you know, in thinking about that that's one of the the things that I think was really interesting to us as we were coming to the the finish line of the paper. I think, if you yeah. will, I love that. Uh, I'll I'll use a sports analogy as I want to do um, about you know training for a game, and uh, you know the way every coach from you know time immemorial has said you know we train now and we do the hard stuff now so that when it really matters we're ready. And I think in a lot of cases, as I read this stuff, I think you know, when a mega threat happens, that's the game, right? And if you haven't trained, if you haven't had the awkward conversations so that people feel like, all right, well, that was weird, but at least I got to mention something. And you do that so that when something big and meaningful happens, the person feels as if they can express themselves, right? But it's about, you know, doing it when you don't need to, so that when you need to, you know, you're prepared. And so uh, that was my takeaway, reading kind of the back end practical implications you know, is you can't wait until a thing happens and say like, hey, let's talk about this a lot. And it's like, no, you got to talk about it or let's allow people to talk about it beforehand. So that's great. So, you know, on that, um, was there anything unexpected that you discovered or realized as you were kind of working through the paper? I always find that's an interesting question. Stuff, and it could be something that's not even in the, the published paper. We, we talked some about this before because, you know, this has remained something that we, um, I think all papers bring a little bit of that. I um, I think one of the pieces certainly was this very differentiated way of thinking about psychological safety. You know, it's a construct that gets utilized so often mm-hmm. in um, our world and, and yeah. we talk about it so easily. And that's the advice we give every manager about almost everything. But to start to separate it in some ways was really... Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I I think for me, as I thought about this, I I think the thing that was surprising and or just as I learned was the was the importance of like living out the research in Mm. like for myself. Right. Mm. So it's important to talk about psychological safety and so on. But to do work like this, it's just really emotionally hard to be collecting data after these really difficult events, to be sitting and having both passionate and also in some ways, like, you know, very abstract conversations Mm -hmm. about issues that we were both feeling in some ways very, very emotional about. It was really important to sort of always be able to rely on living out some of these things. So the research operated on both sides. Yeah, because I, I and I, I want to make sure I get the sentence that there were two two studies that you did, right? So the one that Angelica mentioned was kind of um, thinking about Black Americans post uh, the murder of George Floyd. But there was a second uh, study that you did kind of replicating with a different population. Can you mention a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the first study in the paper, we all know if, if anyone that looked at the dates when these study, when the events happen, you might notice that study one occurred after study two. And we'll let our listeners decide why they think that may have happened. But um, the, the study one was we collected data after the Atlanta area spot shootings where um, a gunman uh, 
shot and killed eight people and six of them were of Asian descent. Um, and so what we did in that study was we recruited uh, employees, full-time employees who either identified as white or as Asian. And we looked at the differences uh, between those two uh groups of employees or between employees that identify with those two different identity groups. And what we found is that Asian employees experienced significantly higher levels of embodied threat after this event. And then when entering the workplace and, and beginning work, they engaged in higher levels of threat suppression, which led to these higher levels of avoidant behaviors. And interestingly, you know, I think when, when, there are, there are aspects of some uh, racial identities that are the same, but there are also aspects that are different, right? And so when you think about um, Asian identity as being really, you know, Asian people coming from multiple different countries and, and, and there being multiple different ethnicities within that, um, we were able to analyze in our data whether the, you know, the, your specific country of origin mattered. Mm. Um, and we found that it, didn't actually that Mm. um, Asian people from different backgrounds were similarly experiencing these Mm. high levels of threat. So that, that was a, I think academically, that was a, Mm. that was an interesting aspect of the research for us. Um, And I think, you know, post the paper, um, I think in, in doing the study, I don't know that Shmuel and I recognize the significance that that study would actually have. Um, and has had since the paper came out. Um, I don't think, I can't recall a time where I've talked about this research or presented this research where someone who was Asian didn't come up to me and talk about just how seen that they Mm. felt from even there being a study Mm -hmm. in the paper that was centered around Asian employees. Um, And so this idea of, you know, even when you think about diversity research in management and uh, research starting to recognize race a bit more, there still tends to be this U.S. focus, which then puts you in the the lens of a you know black-white dichotomy, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, and so it's been it's been really interesting for us since the paper has come out. The number of people that identify with a lot of different. Um, identity groups that have been really impacted by the work. And so that's also been, I think, really reaffirming for us as well. Well, count me as one of those that uh, was impressed, uh, which is why it, it won it won the, the 2022 Best Paper Award at AMJ. Everyone should check it out. Okay, so I want to see if we can expand a little bit more from the paper. I mean, I could talk about the paper all day, but we have, we have I want to expand a little bit. And I was thinking about threats and trauma And the fact that, you know, one of the aspects of your definition is receive significant media attention. And we know media now attends to a lot of things in ways, in volumes that it didn't before. And so from your view, do you think that this is something that maybe is increasing in regularity? And if so, you know, what do you think might be some of the consequences of that that maybe uh, are, are less obvious? Yeah, I'll start. Um, So it's interesting. I don't know that it's increasing with regularity so much as that it's become more common to acknowledge the fact that these events have happened and for people to grapple with the effects that 
these events may be having on different employees. And even just from, you know, if I think about just our own experience of having started doing this research in, you know, the fall of 2016 till now, when we were first talking about this, first collecting the data, there wasn't a lot in popular culture or the popular press that we could really pull on that would tell us uh, the effects that these events were having. And then 2020 happens and the world kind of stops and is really, you know, there's a racial reckoning that is sparked by a mega threat. And and now there are all these, you know, think pieces that come Mm -hmm. out that are about the influence that, you know, the murder of George Floyd had not just on organizational organizations stated commitments to racial equity and the 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 DEI work um and in and raising the importance of that work in organizations but also the effect that this event had specifically on black americans and their ability to operate within the workplace and so it's been interesting to see that and i i think really what has more so happen over the years is that people have become more much more vocal about talking about these things in the workplace. And then I I also think that there's, you know, obviously when we talk about media, where a big piece of that is social media and the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, with social media, it brings just reporting on a lot of different things that are happening in the world, but there's still events. And I think maybe it's because of the fact that um, I was in a space of collecting data after these events for Mm. like a while. Mm -hmm. There's still these, there's still a lot of things that happen in the world that do not capture societal attention in the way that other events do. Um, And it's not always predictable to me, even even now, which events are the ones that really spark attention for, you know, society at large versus ones that are kind of just talked about in smaller circles or pockets. Um, and so but I, I do think that it's become more common for people to think about how does our work, how do these things that are happening in society impact our work? Um, yeah. And I and I think. I'll end it by also kind of thinking about the fact that I think COVID-19 also had a big impact on this as well, right? When our workplace ceases being just the place we go to work, Mm -hmm. then it becomes much easier to realize that the things that are happening in society are impacting you at work and to really think about what that might be. Yeah, I agree. So Shamul, I'd love to get your uh, opinion as well as I'm going to do an add-on thinking about companies or policies that you've seen enacted that you think, oh, this is great, this is really interesting, or "Hmm, we should maybe uh, reconsider how widespread XYZ policy is. So what has been your your view on this? Yeah, so it's actually interesting because I, I agreed with everything that Angelica said. You know, I struggle a lot maybe because I'm a little bit older in thinking about sort of, you know, the the relevance of media and social media and, and how this goes and also how so many things get classified sometimes as like being threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, but generationally, you know, it's a, someone said some words and it upset a whole bunch of people. And does that rise to the level of like being a mega threat, you know, versus and, and how are we comparing these mega threats? I don't um, know about you, but the gold dress, blue dress, that yes, uh, that right. was very traumatic for me. Well, there was, people insisted, of of, people, people insisted it was yes. blue. And I said, no, <laughs> I don't even know who you are anymore. I'm sorry. Continue, Shamu. 
but that's the exact kind of thing, right? Like people get really wrapped up sometimes around like a singular event. Like we're all talking about this and we're all deeply engaged with it. And, and then we're comparing it to sort of, you know, shootings and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and and it's hard sometimes that's a piece of this that has been a constant struggle, right? Like what, at what point does something rise to the level of being a mega threat versus Mm -hmm. affecting us sort of to your question before of, Mm -hmm. Is this a, is this actual trauma? Is this where we're actually taking on some sort of vicarious victimhood? Or is it I'm just upset and that's part of just being a human, right? Mm. And I think that piece of it is something that we have to be careful even as like both as researchers and then like sort of consumers of information as well. Um, and so I think that's where things get challenging for organizations, right? Post George Floyd, you know, in 2020, organizations were certainly grappling with this notion of, well, what do we do and how do we make people start to like, you know, bring themselves to work and have these courageous conversations. And, mm. and I, and I would say our reaction to that one was very much in the, in the realm of, hmm, like, we're not sure this is really the best way to, to go about it. You know, mm-hmm. that if you've never had these conversations before mm-hmm. and you're getting in a room with a bunch of strangers, sometimes people who are, you know, sometimes in Zoom rooms mm-hmm. um, because of the, the time that it was and sharing things sometimes that are really personal and other times where mm-hmm. people have absolutely no sense of, you know, what someone else might be feeling, have may have never talked about race in their lives before um, and bringing all these people together to have these conversations. It's a little too much of a leap sometimes, and it can lead to more negative outcomes than positive ones. You know, I think that recognition is sometimes the first step. And so when organizations do this well, and sometimes this doesn't have to be big, oh, the CEO sends an email. Um, Sometimes it can be, you know, we talk a little bit about this in our first paper, the Academy of Management Review, where I believe it was the CEO of um, Apple, so Tim Cook, it's sort of a moment of silence, I believe, after I think it was the uh, the sh- the shooting in the Pulse nightclub Pulse. shooting. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah, did a Pulse nightclub, you know, did a moment of silence yeah. um, after that. And that's sort of a big way to recognize something that has, you know, affected a large number of people. But sometimes, you know, it could also just be a team leader who sends a note, a personalized note to someone recognizing that, look, I know something happened that might have affected you differently than others. And I just want you to know that I'm aware of it. So using this access to information that we have, and then but using it with sort of by thinking about who might be affected in differential ways, I think sometimes could be um, the first step of starting, as we said, to, you know, um, as you highlighted before, right, like starting to sort of practice for the game and really doing that in slow and and intentional ways rather than trying to do these big, large scale programs that are likely not going to succeed or stick because we, mm-hmm. we know that most of them didn't stick, to be honest. Well, uh, I will leave it at that. Um, so I, I want to ask one other uh, big question to get you guys into trouble here. Um, so your paper is built on this theory of racialized organizations. And you know, it occurred to me that, and it's and it's an assumed part of your paper, and it's it's based on work that you know I've read, and I think is is um, is really you know selling Como's like a hero to me, right? So I'm I'm on board, but you know I noticed that this is definitely a topic that is debated kind of in the public square about to what extent should we be conceptualizing organizations as racialized, and so. I was just curious about, you know, I'm sure these are debates that you track or or listen to, maybe have with students, have with other academics, read 
publications in academic journals that maybe have something to say about this. And I was just curious about kind of your take on this, um, both with, again, academia, but also uh, within practice more generally. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this one. Um, so when you think about the, the theory of racialized organizations, really what that theory does is it explains how organizations are racialized structures. Like, what does it mean for an organization to be a racialized structure? And there are different things that uh, Victor Ray and his theory talks about that and features of organizations, such as the, you know, racial inequity being baked into the the structures where uh, people of color tend to be in lower levels of organizations with there being more white people that dominate the top as being just one example of the ways in which that organizations are racialized. And I think for me, it in finding this theory and, and starting to do this work, um, it was really this, I feel like it was, I was almost meant to do it or it was, Mm -hmm. it was, it was always part of what I was recognizing even in my early grad school experiences. So, you know, when I think back to the, the first seminar class that I took in micro organizational behavior, I remember thinking after almost every week, you know, we go through different topics. You're talking about motivation. You're talking about justice. You're talking about creativity. You're talking about emotions. And I remember thinking in that class that every week there was potentially one research question that I could come up with that Mm -hmm. would, that dealt with like, how would this be different if we were truly considering race and whether that was from the perspective of how might this differ for racial minority employees as they're Mm -hmm. in organizations or how might the perceptions of someone be different if we considered the fact that perceptions of people and leaders and managers and organizations differs based on their race and their gender and other identities. Um, And so in my early grad school years, I really did recognize the fact that research and management tended to be race neutral Mm -hmm. um, and tended to take a colorblind perspective. Um, And it wasn't until I started research on mega threats to really dive deep into this kind of one experience that you may have as a racial minority employee and be grappling with that other white employees may not be having that I started to really gain traction on this idea of of wanting to study this. And so I don't really, I'm not a big, let's get into a debate about this thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm very much thinking of, okay, well, let's think of all the different research questions that may come up about this that we could empirically test and think about what are um, the ways in which race may be influencing the, the, the processes and the practices that we as scholars are saying are the gold standards, even something like psychological safety yeah. as being this, you know, gold standard construct that we all advocate in our classes to mm-hmm. our students of, you know, developing psychological safety with your employees, the benefits of that for teams and um, employees individually. And then thinking about the fact that that construct can be completely different if yep. you just think about it from the perspective of developing psych safety around conversations related to race. So yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah. Anything to add? Yeah, I'll add a couple of things. I think, you know, um, at the risk of getting into trouble, as you highlighted before. Good trouble. Um, good, good, trouble. Get into some good trouble. <laughs> good trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I I I think the takeaway I had after sort of working on this paper and delving deep and deep more deeply into this is that there is just nothing that is not racialized sort of in the structures around us and that organizations are at the crux of both highlighting and solving, not that we can solve it, but like moving towards solutions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we often in our work think about organizations as like people like us, right? We're sitting behind computers and we're working on problems, sort of white collar workers. But if we mm -hmm. think about it and we think about how this might organizations, you know, solve problems in healthcare, they solve issues of education. I mean, we're certainly seeing that with mm -hmm. sort of shifts to race neutral admissions, right? And, mm -hmm. and what what it looked like before, what it's going to look like going other forms of public education, yeah. um, you know, just sort of what's happening around the world. And so it is just really important for us to recognize how much of this is so deeply racialized and start to find all the places and spaces so we can start having those conversations and starting to think about how these structures are affecting the different individuals and groups and their agency. I had a feeling I knew where on the debate you both stood, but I <laughs> feel like I wanted to ask it. And, you know, if I can take a, a point of privilege, right? So we were a little behind the scenes here. We were scheduled to do this podcast last week. And uh, and we didn't, in part because there was uh, an event on the campus of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where Shamul and I both work. And so I was like, we should probably push this off, right? Um, but in the aftermath of that, I think, you know, re rereading your paper and then thinking about it really made me uh, consider a lot about the doctoral students that are here, faculty that are here, who might be experiencing this in a different way than I'm experiencing it. And and so it was uh, it was right on time for me to be thinking these ideas as we were going through this tough time. So thank you all for for writing this paper that uh, I think will continue to to help and uh, provoke good trouble. Um, okay, so uh, you, you made it through that without uh, without getting uh, into too much trouble. So good job. All right, last two <laughs> questions. These are fun ones um, that I like to ask at the end. So the first one is, uh, I'm just curious, you know, our field is is built on this idea around phenomena that we don't understand. And I think a lot of our best research comes from trying to understand these phenomena. And so what events or behaviors or things that are happening right now kind of pique your curiosity, make you say, hmm, I wonder, and this doesn't have to be a working paper. I mean, just literally stuff you might be reading in the newspaper, seeing and saying, like, I'm really interested in why that might be the case. What are some things? Yeah, I'll kick us off. So I am very much a phenomenon-driven researcher. Mm -hmm. uh, I wear that as a badge of honor instead of, I think, the way I'm supposed to wear it in terms of it not being something that we ascribe to being. Um, but I think one one of the things that Shamul and I have been talking about um, is related, related to the paper, but also I think related to the headlines in the world. It's just this idea of thinking about the the stepping stones to getting to building and developing identity-based psychological safety and the things that might hinder that. Um, and one of the first steps that could hinder it is the fact is this lack of acknowledgement um, or of race and even being able to talk about it and name it. 
Mm. Um, and so we is that even, happening? I haven't noticed. I, I don't that. Is know. That a phenomenon is, is, that, that's is that something okay. uh, where uh, and we we I think we described it as racism elusive language, where mm. people are kind of like, yeah, you know, people. You know what I'm talking about. Different identities might, you know, um, and it's 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 interesting. And I think Shamul and I have both had experiences where people have gravitated towards us simply because of us being able to name the thing Mm -hmm. of saying like, hey, your black students may be experiencing something different here than your white students. And, And how about we just say black (laughs) and Mm. and, and race Mm -hmm. Um, and so thinking about how this racism elusive language while embedded in structures that are saying we care about diversity we celebrate diversity like what are the consequences of that uh but we celebrate our differences but we also can't even save them Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and what that might be leading to yeah Yeah, another thing I would say, and I'll stick again a little bit in line with the things that are aligned with what we've talked about today, even though also very much phenomenon driven. And I all I have on my I have no research ideas on my board, only a list of words that are related to big. (laughs) Let's hear them. Give us some of the words. Come on. Let's but see, the big read one, your board. No, no, don't try to board it. Yeah, well, give us give us two words that are on there. No context. Okay, so words. one um, one of them is one you're very aware of. So I have on here political polarization. Okay, I'm familiar um, with that. I like it. Mm-hmm. The other one is one that hopefully Angelica and I are going to do some work on is cross race friendships. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I'll, I'll throw None of those is one. one word, but that's fine. Okay, multiple <laughs> words. I got it. Terms, I got phrases. it. Terms, phrases. Phrase, turn okay. of a phrase. All right. I'm sorry. I interrupted you, Shamul. Continue um, your thought, please. Yeah, the third one, and I think also linked to this one I have on here is vicarious trauma. So just the same type of, mm. you know, taking on this idea of victimhood, but then moving it to this notion of when we're sort of in communities that have, or people who've experienced trauma and, and how we are in turn internalize it as well. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. I got to say some, some good, some a little bit downer. I don't know. Um, you know, just keep a balance there, Shamu. I, I worry about you sometimes. <laughs> no. All right. Well, last, last question. Um, what is something you are reading right now purely for fun? Do not tell me a article or some social science book. I will cut it out of the podcast. I need fun what do you read to relax? What do you read to get away from this job? I can go. I read a lot. Um, so I have reading gold for the year, most only fiction. Um, I only read books that are not written by white authors. That's my goal for 2023. And so I'm reading a book right now called Yellow Face. And it's about um, the publishing industry and someone who pretends to be Asian and does some sort of appropriation mm-hmm. of um the Chinese of Chinese culture in writing this like a historical fiction book. And so far seems great. And this is a fiction book yes. about <laughs> this. Okay. All right. Interesting. Okay. I mean, you know. <laughs> this is great. Angelica. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So grad school ruined um, the reading for fun thing for me. You're not um, in grad school anymore. So, no, it's ruined it. though. It's gone. It's, there it's no, never coming back. No, it's 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 gone. There is no more reading for fun. We read. It's TikTok when, from here on out. Yeah. Just well, so. yeah. Or reality TV. Oh, um, so I am all about the uh, low stakes <laughs> reality dating shows. Like they're my give me, you know, people who are like, can I pull you for a chat? And mm. I'm I'm in. I'm ready to buckle up and and see the drama and then see them all on Instagram, you know, two weeks later. Trying to monetize like, it. You know, no, they are monetizing it. It's, are. That, it's amazing. So what's a show? <laughs> uh, this is well out of my wheelhouse. What, what, is, what would be your favorite? This is well out of your... Um, believe it or not, I don't, this is not my thing. Uh, but, believe uh, it, really? Yeah. Um, I might watch TV and my wife is watching and she does like the reality stuff. And so maybe by osmosis, I will know some of these shows. So what, what, what are, give me one or two. Yes. So right now I am finishing up Love Island USA and starting really the Continue. ultimatum and starting the ultimatum. The, the ultimatum. Yes. That one's a little okay. bit more high stakes because it's like you guys have been together for years and you thought it was a good idea to come on this TV show. Mm. Okay. <laughs> but, All right. Well, Love Island, purely low stakes. There's nothing. <laughs> There's nothing redeeming about the show. All right, I get it. I like it. Um, well, thank you uh, both for for coming on to the lit review. I I appreciate you taking the time out to talk about this amazing paper. That again, I will uh, recommend everyone kind of check out and keep an eye out because apparently they're working on some other one word phenomenon ideas that are going to be coming to a journal uh, near you. So Angelica yeah. and Shamul, thank you very much for joining me. Thank yes. you. Thanks for the invitation. It's lots of fun. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this was so much fun. All right, that's it for the Lit Review. I appreciate Angelica and Shamul for their time, and I appreciate you all for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Lit Review podcast. You can find this podcast by searching The Lit Review, an AMJ podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms, as well as on the AMJ homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter. We have a weekly Twitter Spaces show called AMJ Radio Live that's hosted by AOM Connect on Twitter Spaces. I'll be joining the show once a month to provide a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and answer any listener questions. Thanks to the Academy of Management for their support for this podcast. Special thanks to my producer, Holly Fearing, for all of her work behind the scenes. Our theme music is produced by Key to Life. This is Sekou. See you next time. Take care and be good. <laughs>